Amen. That song uh, rings true when we think about this time of year and how easy it is for us to consider the Christmas story and the significance thereof and not see Jesus as anything more than that baby in a manger, isn't it? And yet, if you read all the way to the end of the Bible, you see that he's going to reign and that we're going to stand before him and sing, holy, holy, holy. And so there's an all-encompassing picture here of the person of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, continuing this uh, series of talks looking at perspectives on Christmas. And last week, we looked specifically at the person of Joseph, and the whole goal of this series of talks is to get us to not only consider what we can learn from each character, several of these characters in the Christmas narrative, but also to get you reading intentionally and thinking critically about this story that oftentimes we've heard so much that we gloss over it. Now, does anyone see that tendency in themselves when they read the Bible, they heard the story before? Don't be shy. I think a lot of us do. And we, we, we come to a story in Scripture and we read through it, but in our mind it's kind of replaying maybe the flannel graph or the children's video we've watched of that story. Right? And the reality is there's so much more here, but it takes us intentionally stepping back, looking into the Word of God diligently to understand and fully grasp what it says. And I really honestly believe there's no other book that does that like the Bible. That you can come back to again and again and again and again and The Spirit of God brings new life to things that you just haven't seen the first time you read through it. And so we're doing a disservice if we just read through it one time and stop. You're you're missing so much. And so I'd encourage you, this time of year, to not just gloss over the Christmas narrative that we see in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 2, but to really take time, bit by bit, And chew on it for a while. And see what God reveals to you that maybe you didn't see before. And this morning, I'm going to ask one main question. It's our subject question for the day. And that subject question is simply this. What are you seeking this Christmas? What are you seeking after this Christmas? Now... Some of you are going to have varied answers to this question. For some of you, maybe this time of year is harder than it is for others. And so what your eyes are fixed on, what you're seeking after, what you're longing for, looks different than the person next to you. Nevertheless, I believe that each one of us is seeking something, even if we don't recognize that we're seeking whatever that is. Each one of us is on a course... Pursuing something 
and only you can fill in the blank for what that is. We could make some guesses, but only you can really fill that in. And so before we move further, I want to stop considering this question. I just want us to pray that God would reveal, first off, what we are truly seeking, both as individuals and corporately as a church. But secondly, that we wouldn't just stay there having identified what we're seeking, but that we would understand, according to the Bible, according to God's Word, what should we be seeking. Okay? So let's pray, commit this time to the Lord, and trust Him for our time in His Word together. Father, we recognize that we are prone to wander, that we are prone to leave you and pursue after whatever else is in front of us. God, I pray today that you would convict us of the things that we're seeking after right now that have become our primary focus. Open our eyes to see maybe areas that we have focused so much on, but we don't even realize it. But don't let us sit there, Lord. Convict us, challenge us, move us by your Spirit to a place where we would see what we should be seeking and that we would find in our seeking that which lasts, that which is eternal, that which brings lasting joy. Lord, we trust you to use this time according to your purposes and we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as I was preparing this week, I came across an article uh, on the top things that people desire but can't seem to attain. And this article was written in 2016, so it's a, a few years old. And it was taken, but when it was written, there was about 800 people that had responded to a survey of a series of questions simply asking if you could say in one word what you want more of in life, what would that be? I'm going to read to you those top eight answers that were taken because I think it's interesting and valuable for us to process. I don't think there's anything on this list we will be surprised by even today. Number eight, if you could say in one word what you want more of in life, what would it be? Number eight was confidence. Feeling like I have something to offer now, rather than feeling constantly as if I'm not ready. Number seven was fulfillment. Utilizing my potential in the best possible way for myself and for others. Number six, if you could say in one word what you want more of in life, was balance. Balancing my need or desire for flexibility while still making enough money and having the benefits I want, was how this was described. Number five was joy. How to find the right role or position or motivation for me now that will bring joy in what I do. Number four, if you could say in one word what you want more of in life, was peace. 
The biggest challenge being lack of clarity about who I am and my purpose. Number three was freedom. The biggest challenge was having freedom to find my true purpose or being lit up or excited by day-to-day tasks. Number two, money. The biggest challenge being not having enough money or time to accomplish the things that I want to do. And number one, can anyone guess what number one is? Anyone have a guess? I heard it. What was it? Happiness. The number one thing, if you could say in one word what you want more of in life, was happiness. Now, as I read through this list, I was honestly kind of discouraged in thinking about that, and yet, at the same time, empathetic, because at any given time in my life, I can recognize areas where I sought after, where this became my focal point, because it's what I longed for most. And understanding that this is a secular article, really written about business people and what they're longing for but can't seem to attain. And so this emphasizes even further that subject question of what are you seeking this Christmas? What is it that you're running after and no matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to attain it and you just end up in this cycle? This is often determined by what we put the most energy towards, what we are fixated on, and often dictates who we are. Now, in our message today, we're going to see a group of guys who were seeking a king. And they find him in a rather unusual location by all cultural standards. So, Matthew chapter 2 I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, and then we're going to unpack this a little bit together. Matthew 2, verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, 
and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, I want to start this by making some observations from the text regarding who these guys were, when they came, and in all reality, what is the true story of these wise men, much to the dismay of present-day stories, okay? Now, the first thing I want you to recognize about these wise men is that they came after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Everyone say, after. How far after? We really don't know. But if you continue reading on into verse 11, we recognize in the midst of this that they find Jesus referenced as a child in a house. Now, I hate to break it to you, but the reality of this means that most likely, by every sense of what the Bible speaks, your wise men are misplaced at your nativity scene. And if you really want an accurate nativity scene, just put them in another room. Or, if you want to go a step further, give them a sign, just put it on a toothpick or something, that says, in transit, searching for the king, okay? Because the reality is, according to this, it was after he was born that they came. Now, there's speculation out there as to how long after, and much of that speculation comes to where Herod, in verse 7, summons the wise men and asks them when the star appeared that they stated that they followed. And then later on, the next portion right after what we read... Herod has all of the children ages two years old and under murdered. That's his way of trying to secure the fact that I I don't want another person to be king. And so many people will speculate and say Jesus could have been up to two years old based on what the wise men told him and his decree then to have everyone two years old and younger all the boys murdered in that sense that, that you get anywhere from A couple months old to two years old. We don't know. Okay, everyone say, we don't know. And it's important for you to be able to say, I don't really know. Because we're not going to add to what God's word says. Amen? These wise men came after Jesus was born. Now, the other thing we see in here... In verse 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the, what is the word? From the east. Everyone say east. We know that they have come from the east. Exactly where in the east? Everyone say, we don't know. Now again, I'm telling you this because I desire that you make informed accurate decisions about what the Bible says based on what it actually says. 
what we now another one this is this is just going to ruin your nativities i'm sorry but i'm really not sorry because this is what the bible says the other thing that we don't know is how many wise men there were now the reason that many people assume there were three is because what there were three gifts okay we see that And that's accurate. You can say, the wise men brought three gifts. According to verse 11, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That does not mean there were three wise men. Okay? It means there were three gifts. Everyone say, three gifts. So, I hate to break it to you, but your Christmas song, We Three Kings, is also not right. Okay? I'm all about breaking down these myths, if you can't tell. What we do know is based on the language used, there were multiple. So I could tell you there were a minimum of two, a maximum of how many? We don't know. Everyone say, we don't know. All right? It's okay to say that. It doesn't change the Christmas narrative any by saying that, okay? Now, the broader question that most people would ask is, who are these wise men? All right? I'm going to count three. You're all going to ask that question. Just so we're on the same page, we're going to say, who are these wise men? All right? One, two, three. Okay. Now, the the actual word for these guys is magi. M-A-G-I, if you want to spell it out. Everyone say magi. And we have no indication that these guys were kings. They're they're magi, they're wise men. And outside of this narrative, there are not many other instances in Scripture of men such as these being mentioned. The most prominent other location we read about wise men is in the book of Daniel. Now specifically, I'm going to give you a reference in Daniel 2, verse 48. It says, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And you could go and you could look up this term wise men, and you could see in your, in your Bible that wise men are referenced multiple times in the book of Daniel, and then they're referenced here in Matthew chapter 2. And biblically speaking, that is all we know about these wise men. Now, other than this account... We have references about these magi in historical records. And I preface that by saying these are in extra-biblical historical records. And this is largely where we gather much of the information that many of you will have heard regarding who these guys were. And in those historical records, they describe this, these wise men or magi as a high caste of individuals, usually among the Persians or the Medes. If you go back historically and look into those time periods, you will see this referenced. These guys would have formed the king's councils, as we saw in Daniel, and cultivated astrology, medicine, and normally natural science practices. Again... This is all from extra-biblical historical documents that portray these. And so I preface that saying, those, those facts about wise men 
are what we know, not from what the Bible tells us, but simply from historical documents. Okay? Now, this is primarily, these historical accounts, is where we get the concept that these wise men were stargazers, astrologers, who in their study witnessed the start, the, witnessed the star when it first appeared and began traveling. They began traveling towards it. And we see them reference this star in verse 2 of Matthew 2. They come to Herod and they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. And then again, when they leave, in verse 9, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, this may be to your dismay as well, but do you recognize that in the Christmas narrative, the only individuals that followed the star were the wise men? The only people in the Christmas narrative that followed a star to find Jesus were these wise men. And we'll, we're, on Christmas Eve, we're actually going to look at the perspective of the shepherds. And usually when you watch those Christmas movies or you read about them in children's books, they portray it as if everyone followed the star and it came to rest over the manger, right? And in biblical truth, if we recognize that it was after Jesus was born that the wise men came, they followed the star. We know that the star had appeared before because they say that. But then it disappears and reappears again. And guides them right to where Jesus is at. And what you see with the shepherds is the angels give them several signs. And I'm going to leave it at that and encourage you to come to Christmas Eve if you want to learn more about this. Okay? But nowhere in Scripture do we see any of the other characters in the Christmas narrative following the star to get to where Jesus was. Now, there's several other really amazing realities in this narrative that I want to point out to you, okay? One, recognize in verse 2 that these wise men were aware that Jesus was born a king. We have no record or idea how they knew this. And recognize these guys were not, they were not Jews, Coming from the east, these would have been Gentile men who were seeking out this king. And by some miracle, they were aware this was not any usual birth. And they put this all together. Praise God for his orienting them to that place. Recognize this also that we see in verses 4 through 6 Herod assembles his chief priests and scribes. These were the main biblical scholars of this day. And recognize that where they are at in location to Bethlehem is only about five miles away. And they were able to pull out the prophecy and say, this is where he's going to be born. And I come to that and I'm instantly convicted and challenged by the nature that the guys who should have known the Bible the best were so close to the newborn Savior and yet didn't care. How often that reflects our own attitude, doesn't it? That we can know this stuff 
And we can hear it. And we can be challenged by it. And yet never move any closer than we were when we started. Recognize this also. That the star that had appeared before and appeared a second time for the purpose of directing the wise men to the place where Jesus was. This is miraculous. That this is all transpiring with specific purpose according to God's plan. And here's why I believe that that is with intentional purpose. The gifts that these wise men gave foretold the purpose of Jesus. They gave gold, which was really common of people to bring to an earthly king and honor him in that way. They brought frankincense, which was used for worship purposes. And then probably the strangest one, if you were to consider... Doing this in real life was myrrh, which was an embalming agent for death. I would not advise any of you to do such a thing at the next baby shower you attend. Okay? And yet, this foretold something about Jesus that even his disciples couldn't comprehend because when he started his ministry, they were convinced he was going to reign right there. He's going to take over and rule as king right here and now. So the very idea of his death, which now we look at and say, that's the gospel. The good news is that Jesus came and died so that we would have life because we deserve death in the midst of our sin. But the the broader question I think that many of us have when we come to this portion of the narrative, aside from just reading and understanding the story and reading and understanding the significance of each of these miraculous signs and things taking place is, why should I care? What real life application can we learn from these wise men who journeyed from the east in search of the king? And I I want to turn your attention, understanding what we've kind of overviewed here and reading this narrative, I want you to flip just a few pages ahead to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, specifically starting at verse 25. And we're jumping a lot of time and space here between the narrative that we read in Matthew 2 and what's happening in Matthew 6. Matthew 6 is in the middle of a sermon or a series of sayings that Jesus himself spoke in which we usually call the Sermon on the Mount, which goes from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. And so these are the words of Jesus himself in his ministry as an adult person now. And starting in verse 25, he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, 
and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet still, I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Verse 33, listen to this, But seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, this is a passage of scripture that is quoted a lot, but it's not usually talked about around Christmas. And yet there's multiple applications here that tie directly between this narrative in Matthew 2 and these promises and challenges in Matthew chapter 6. The first one that I want to challenge you with in application is that seeking the things of Christ may require the abandonment of current realities. Seeking the things of Christ may require the abandonment of current realities. Now, the fact that the wise men saw the star, began traveling, and continued to search until they found him revealed a commitment to find the king at whatever cost and whatever duration. These men didn't even know the extent of what Jesus had come for, yet it was still their priority. Now, I want you to think about that in the realm of where we sit today. How difficult it is for us to even consider abandoning some of the realities in our lives in pursuit of one who promises eternity. And yet physically right now we go, I don't see it. And if we look at Matthew 6 and Jesus' command to not be anxious, why? Because God already knows your needs. Are you not more valuable than the birds of the air? Are you not more precious than the flowers of the field? Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you. Now when I was processing this, the, the picture that immediately came to mind is one of how often we start seeking the things of Christ and then kind of fall off the wagon, if you will. We, we get tired of searching for this and get comfortable in our own pattern of thinking and way of doing whatever is before us. And it's just like, have you ever played hide-and-seek with a kid who's under four years old? You could be hidden for hours because they'll look for you for maybe two minutes and then they don't care anymore. 
they get distracted by something else, and all of a sudden, they're on to the next thing, and you're still sitting in the closet waiting for them to come find you. The reality is, we often do the same thing when we're seeking out the things of God. We start off just like that little kid. Oh, I'm so excited about this. I'm searching for it. I'm yearning for it. And then, all of a sudden, we get distracted. And we're off on something else. And the truths of God's Word, all of that is still the same. And the application of that is the same. But it requires us prioritizing less whatever we have gotten distracted by and shifting our focus to that which God has called us to in Christ. We know from His Word why Jesus came. And we know why we celebrate His birth. It's because of the Gospel. Everyone say good news. We know from His Word that He came and died to bring life. But do we pursue him at all cost, recognizing that that is where life is found. Seeking the things of Christ may require the abandonment of current realities. The second thing is that seeking the things of Christ may cause strain in earthly relationships. What the wise men were searching for was in direct opposition to what Herod wanted. And we see that specifically in verse 3, when Herod the king heard that they were looking for he who was born king of the Jews, he was troubled. And then if you glance over in the next portion of the narrative in verse 16, after the wise men had rerouted and decided not to go back to Herod as he had asked them to do, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. The wise men could not have anticipated that this would be the result of their stay in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, their desire was to seek out the newborn king. Now, some of you have experienced something similar in your own personal walk of faith. Where you have been someone, you have come to faith in Christ, and when you made that shift, there were people that were a part of that life you lived over here that did not approve of that shift. Now there's still others in your life who maybe are trying to convince you that you can do both, and there can be a balance here, and yet... We know that the things of Christ are in opposition to the things of the world. If you want more info on that, read 1 John. And he talks specifically about that. And he says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's separation. These, they don't mix. And oftentimes I fear that we prioritize so much our earthly relationships that we sacrifice our pursuit of the things of Christ as a result. Now, there should be a healthy tension here because we know and recognize that it's our duty, it's our mission to reach these people with the gospel. And yet, 
if we are specifically seeking those relationships as our priority, we miss our focus of fixing our eyes fully upon Jesus and seeking to become more like Him. The third and final thing that we can glean from this narrative is that seeking the things of Christ should result in humble adoration and worship. Now, the wise men realistically could have been really underwhelmed when they came to the place where Jesus was. It was not a palace. It was not a kingdom. It was not the capital of this nation. It was a house. And they find Jesus there with Mary. And yet, what was their response when they saw Jesus? They bowed in worship. And immediately after that, they gave gifts. This was not usual in every birth that was taking place here. But there was an awe-inspired worship that transpired as soon as they saw this newborn king. In the same way, when we encounter Christ, it may not look like what you imagined that it should. But what you will find is worthy of awe-inspired worship and attention. So I ask you today, what are you seeking this Christmas? Are you seeking after a better family relationship? Are you seeking financial security? Are you seeking the latest and greatest thing on the market? Are you just seeking survival? My prayer is that in all of this, you set out to seek the one who gave his life for you. And that the reminder that what he offers does not fade. That's the promise that you see in Matthew chapter 6. It cannot be taken away. That this causes you to rejoice. And bow in worship as we celebrate the coming of our Savior. Amen? Let's stand together. The worship team is going to come as we close this morning. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I pray that we would recognize more fully than we did when we came today what we are seeking, what we are pursuing and more than that, that we recognize in the example of these wise men who left their country and pursued this newborn king. They sought direction from other people. They yearned to find, to bring gifts, to worship. Lord, I pray that we would be challenged by that example. These men who didn't even recognize or know the true purpose behind why Jesus had come at this point. And yet we stand here holding the Word of God, knowing 
the entirety of why Jesus came. And so may we not lose sight of that this season. Lord, may we fix our eyes more fully upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, running with endurance the races set before us. Lord, give us the perseverance to do that well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.